Voice Nation. Greetings and gluppity glups, everyone. I sincerely hope you are having a wonderful day. I know I certainly am. Up until the point I dumped coffee everywhere inside my truck today, including yours truly, this only happens on the way to the hospital, doesn't it? I've been test driving a new cologne lately, Terra Herms, as I just love fragrances that have that ISO-E molecule. That's another discussion. A nurse commented about it today as she walked by me and asked me what I was wearing. Cafe Verona, I replied. She didn't get it, but I had a good laugh. Don't worry, I'm getting to the gluppity glup. I got a contractual cup of coffee dumped on me recently. One of the companies I represent sent me a non-compete agreement to sign... I know, I know, it is what it is, accept it and move on, Kevin, right? Well, no, where I am in life and to maintain my carefully cultivated position as Switzerland on this podcast, I politely declined to sign said document unless the specific language that locked me down was removed. Over the course of many, many weeks, this discussion went back and forth, all the while my email box just keeps getting pinged and pinged with the document they want me to sign. And every time I opened it to check it out, the language that I didn't want was still there. I turned to my wife after this went on way longer than it should have and said, I am living a corporate version of a Dr. Seuss book, Green Eggs and Ham. Will you sign it wearing Crocs? Will you sign it opening a box? Will you sign it with your text? Will you sign it at FedEx? No, I do not like non-competes. I will not sign it, Sam, I am. I will not sign it on a boat. I will not sign it on a tote. I could do this all day. Very entertaining. Well, savvy parents reading books to their children recognize Gluppity Glup as from the Dr. Seuss book, The Lorax, a book he wrote after a protracted creative slump. After reading this particular book to my kids, I'm not sure that he ever got out of that slump. Not his finest moment. Well, guess what? Your hospitals are in a slump. I was reading Becker's CFO report the other day. One third of hospitals are now operating in negative margins. For-profit health systems report financial challenges as labor expenses soar. 181 rural hospitals have shot down since 2005. I wrote an article on inflation for LinkedIn recently and had a great conversation with an MD director of one of the largest GPOs in the country the other day. And without even mentioning that article, he shared with me the challenges their facilities were experiencing on just that inflation front. Blood costs up 20 26% supply charges all going up. Furniture, he said, almost surprised by it. Just buying furniture now has just gotten so much more expensive. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, are we able to raise our prices to account for increased shipping, raw materials, and labor costs? You know the answer. So think this will affect us anytime soon? You bet your gluppity glup it will. Well, part of our deep and wide series is providing you slump insurance, sharing ways you can be in so deep with your doctors. Speaking of doctors, today we are talking to Dr. Herrick Siegel, section head of orthopedic oncology at UAB in upstate Alabama. He's a must follow on LinkedIn if you like cases that can sometimes remind me of the sign in Dante's Divine Comedy. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Well, Dr. Siegel never abandons hope in these disaster platies. He's always looking for the opportunity in the chaos to improve the lives of his patients. You're going to want to 
hang around for that conversation. No, I did not lose my place. Sharing practical ways to have you in so deep with your doctors, employees of the hospital, employees of the companies you work for, and competitive peers so that you stand a better chance of being that rock in the stream rather than being carried away by it. And looking at products to widen your income base. Multiple revenue streams is the moat around your business. I cannot say that enough. We have a very special guest on these very subjects today. Dr. Siegel shared with me a particular rep firing on all cylinders that he believes you need to hear from. A big device nation, welcome to Will. Thanks, Kevin. Happy to be here and an honor and a pleasure. Well, it's an honor and a pleasure to speak to you, sir. Before we talk about deep and wide, I'm just curious. How did you land in orthopedic device sales? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I never would have thought I would have ended up in this industry. I played golf collegiately and thankfully got worse instead of better in college. (laughs) Instead of uh, trying to play the tour, which was my lifelong passion, uh, I actually decided to go into teaching. Uh, I taught golf for a few years and kind of woke up one day and realized I didn't want to do that the rest of my life. I moved back to Birmingham, got involved with a, a gentleman who had a company, a DME company, started selling back braces and TENS units and stuff like that. And a buddy of mine from high school, Frank Tomlinson, uh, got the opportunity to be a distributor at a very young age in, in his mid-20s. And I begged him for a job for a few months. And he finally got sick of me asking and convinced the company we worked with at the time to float me for a few months. And, you know, we went from there and uh, we built this from zero to something. And we became partners a few years after that. And here we are, almost 14 years into it now. So it's been a a tremendous journey and and I absolutely love the business. You work on the independent side of this business. I've done both. Each side has its own challenges and opportunities. Uh, Any thoughts from your perspective as an independent agent in today's environment? I have never worked direct for a, a big company. The things I like about being a distributor based is is just being nimble. You know, if we want to go uh, pick up a, a product line or get into a, an industry outside of ortho, uh, which we have done some, and capitalize on some of the relationships we've got outside of our core group of people, uh, you know, we have that ability. Or we want to get into a different part of orthopedics. Uh, you know, we have we 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 can pick up different product lines. And, and be nimble in that way. And also, my territory is most likely larger. We have a relatively large territory. So there's no day that I shouldn't be filled with doing something, whether it's being in the OR or making sales calls or whatever it may be. Uh, but definitely the challenges of this side is that, you know, companies can get bought. You know, you don't have any kind of guarantee. It's straight commission. There's no company car. There's no insurance. There's no uh, you know things given to us from the parent company. We have to kind of provide all of that for ourselves. So there's definitely give and takes, but you know I wouldn't do it any other way. It's a lot of fun and there's so much opportunity if you've got relationships to, to grow your business uh, from an independent side of things. Well, Will, you just spoke of the relationships that you have with your customers. It's my contention. The reps that are dug in deep relationally with their surgeons, employees of the hospital, employees of their companies, even their competitive peers are going to be a little bit more resilient as change continues coming our way. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I definitely definitely agree. Um, I think that one of the cornerstones of this business is longevity. And the longer that you're in this business, uh, the better opportunity you're going to have to be successful. Uh, And it takes a long time to be successful in this business. I think a lot of people on the outside looking into this this business think that, you know, we're all making a ton of money real quick and playing golf two or three days a week. And I can assure you, as much as I would love for that to be the case, uh, it is not. But I do think that if you're in this for a while and you and you really earn the right 
to you know gain business with your physicians. You know that's that's one of the cornerstones of, of of the industry. I love that line, Will. Earn the right, and as we're looking to do that very thing with our surgeon customers, any advice on what that looks like practically to you? Absolutely. You know, my partner Frank Tomlinson uh, came up with this kind of idea that we preach to all the people that work with us is that if you put the patient first, the surgeon second, the hospital third, and your wallet fourth, you know you're going to do well in this business. You know that also ties into longevity, as I mentioned earlier, but also having knowledge. You've got to have a thirst for knowledge in this business. And one of the things I love about this business is that every day is a learning experience. And if you don't learn something every day, shame on you, because our clients know more than we will ever know about what we do. We we may know more about how our widget goes together, instruments or whatever, but we will never be on the same level as them. And so we need to strive to have that knowledge. And I think that whether they want to admit it or not, our, our surgeons are impressed more with us if we try to understand what they're doing on their level. Well, let's look at the employees of the hospital. That covers a lot of ground, right? From central sterile, OR staff, purchasing, on and on and on. Have any thoughts on what we could be doing better working alongside them. Absolutely. Uh, you know, one thing I definitely have to push myself more and more to do is just is just take interest in everyone. Everyone in the operating room and really at the hospital uh, serves an important role. And you need to take interest in those people, whether it's obviously the surgeons, the techs, the nurses, the janitorial staff, the the people who run the board or purchasing, you know, always try to be thankful to those people, always try to get involved in their lives, understand who they are. Little things like, you know, bringing cookies to the SPD folks because they are always, it's a thankless job a lot of time. They can make or break your life. They need to know how much you appreciate they do what they do for you. And, and that goes for everyone in, in the OR. I think people recognize that. So whether it's a surgeon or someone else, if, if you treat other people really well, that can, that really helps. Well, let's look outside the OR for a minute. What about the employees of the companies we represent? People on our teams, the, the ops people and the like. A- any best practices on those relationships? Uh, yeah. So I'll, to start, I'll kind of talk about our distributorship and then go beyond that into the companies we represent. You know, one of the things that I preach, you know, within our organization is that no one works for us. They work with us. And whether you've worked with us a day, a week, a year, 10 years, you know, your opinion matters and you want to treat people as if they are part of the team. And then as far as like working with all the different companies we represent, you want to entrench yourself into any layer that you can, whether it's within the marketing department, logistics, you know, sales ops, or even the C-suite levels, because those are the people that are going to really help you along the way. And maybe if they're going to launch a new product and you've got the relationship with them corporately, they may give you the first opportunity when they start to slow roll out things. And you want to get as involved as you can with every layer of the corporate side. Well, lastly, Will, peers, P for peers, our relationships with the man or woman putting implants on a cart across the hall from us that compete with them. Why is that even important? Um, shouldn't we just be poking holes in their trays? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm just kidding. Uh, I know. I, you know. Thankfully, uh, you know, I work in a territory where uh, I've got a lot of great friends that are competitive reps, which in ways makes it harder because we're all gunning for the same business. Um, right. But you know, respect. Always be respectful of the competition because in any industry, but especially this one, you, it's a big business, but a small world. And you never know who you're going to be working with or for one day. It's just always good to be respectful of your peers. And whether it's giving advice to a younger rep who's kind of struggling or letting someone borrow an instrument because there was a hole in their trade that obviously we, we would never put in, right? 
But right. for letting them borrow a hand truck, I mean, I feel like the hand truck is always uh, is something we leave somewhere and someone needs to borrow that. And uh, just always be willing to help and, and treating your, your coworkers and your competitors with respect. And everyone's not going to like you, and that's fine, but make it hard for them to not respect you. Will, we've talked about going wide on Device Nation, looking at products that complement our call pattern that can add another revenue stream. One company that may fit that very bill for listeners looking for revision options, reconstruction options, is a company you represent, Link. I saw their products many years ago. Fast forward to this past Academy, I went by their booth and looked at what they've just released. Tell us about your experiences with their products and why reps may want to consider adding Link to their bag. I picked up Link about two and a half years ago, and it is definitely one of the best business decisions we've ever made. At the time, I really had no idea how much they had FDA cleared. You know, they're a tumor oncology company by, you know, as a start, but they've really made a push into a lot of other areas. And they are, the amount of products they put out in the two and a half years that I've been with them and in the pipeline for, say, the next two to three years is really mind-blowing. I, I, I could spend a, a lot of time rattling off all the different products, but they, they have been fantastic for us. And the biggest reason beyond just the products is the culture at the company. The head of the U.S. side of the operations is a guy named Greg Pomasol, and he's a former distributor, and he really understands our needs and struggles. Everyone at the company, from logistics to operations to you know product management, so on and so forth, their whole goal is to do anything they can to help us grow our business. And it's and it's such a breath of fresh air having that mentality. And it's it's been a lot of fun to be on the journey with them. And they've come out with these new flexi cones, which has been a huge part of our business. Uh, the new embrace shoulder system is really awesome, and uh, we've never had a shoulder. And so it's been a really big help for us, you know, as we move forward in that product line gets, you know, gets better and better. And the revision side of things is, is has been been great as well, because we had a void in our bag, you know, within our distributorship on the oncology side specifically. And it's been a, a great company to work with. And we're very fortunate. And I definitely would recommend it to anyone out there looking to, to find a joint company, specifically one that's uh, very deep on the revision side. Dr. Siegel's been doing a lot of posts on his experience with the Flexicones for people that are hearing that word for the first time well tell us a little about it yeah you know, the cones that they have developed are very unique they're uh, 3d printed there is a uh, trabeculink uh, metal that they use which is a porous 3d printed material they're extremely thin and lightweight and they have this uh, flexion ramp where they basically compress as you implant them in uh, as opposed to being rigid that can you know potentially cause fractures and stuff like that. They're extremely thin, so you can fit really big stems through them. Uh, and they have a, a variety of different geometries and shapes that, you know, can really help fit a lot of different type of bone defects. But, you know, the 3D printing also allows you to have that biologic fixation, which is important. So, Will, before we close up shop, any good rep stories you'd like to share that might offer a teachable moment? Definitely one that sticks out in my mind where I'm going to, you know, put myself out there is the young rep, we picked up a a line that had an endoscopic carpal tunnel system. And I kind of did a deep dive on it and, and thought I was going to go out and fill it with this product. And I'm maybe six months into the business, about as green as you can get. And I go to a, a very well-known surgeon in town and I, I walk in his clinic and he's got all his fellows there, his whole staff. And I, he he gives me a little bit of time to talk to him. And and I just, I, I give give it all to everything I've learned. And he stood there with a straight face and, uh, and, and uh, let me you know get through the whole deal. And when I got done, he said, Will, I really appreciate you you, know, you talking to me about this product. Sounds great. But the only problem is I don't do carpal tunnels. And uh, <laughs> it was a humbling 
experience. And I'm sure he and the fellows got a good laugh about that. And, you know, the thing that I learned from that in my, in my business in, is that, you know, you got to really uh, do your homework. You know, I had not done my homework. I was excited about the product and I knew everything about it, but I didn't understand my, my client. And thankfully, uh, that surgeon and I are, are still friends to this day, and it didn't burn a, a relationship. Uh, but uh, that was a humbling moment for me and, and a teachable one that, you know, you, you always have to know your clients, you need to know your products, and you got to understand uh, every, every aspect of what you're doing. Yeah, zeal is kind of nothing without a little wisdom, right? Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on the show to share what deep and wide looks like to you. Great work there in upstate Alabama. You're an inspiration to box openers everywhere, sir. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure, Kevin. Sage words of advice there, rep to rep. Patient first, surgeon second, hospital third, and your wallet dead last. Cross-stitch that hanging on the wall in your kitchen right next to that yellow rotary dial phone. Yes, they still sell those. Well, that music can only mean one thing. When the troke is broke and the rim is gone, who are you going to call? Herrick Siegel! Pelvic discontinuity. Yeah, I made it work. Who are you going to call? Herrick Siegel! Why do I have this sneaking suspicion that that's going to end up on Dr. Siegel's preference card? All kidding aside, we're spending time with a true giant in our field today. The surgeon other surgeons call when there just might be one more answer. A gentleman who embodies courage, tenacity, and technical wizardry. So honored to have him in the room with us. A big device nation welcome to Dr. Herrick Siegel. Thank you. Dr. Siegel, it's such an honor to have you on the show. I can't wait to ask you about your practice as an orthopedic oncologist here in the wonderful state of Alabama. I ask you about DFRs, hinges, the arthroplasty disaster course. But first, let's go back to Los Angeles. What put you on the path to medicine? Uh, well, my father was a radiologist, and so I grew up in a, a family of uh, having a doctor leading the household, and I got interested through him. Volunteered a lot of my time early on in high school and college uh, doing research projects and volunteering at the hospital that he worked at. Eventually, I uh, got an interest in medicine through college, uh, doing science classes, and always considered medicine as uh, somewhat of a fallback if I couldn't find anything else interesting. So kind of just kept going towards medicine. And then uh, before I knew it, I was pretty much an orthopedic surgeon. <laughs> but um, medicine was always uh, kind of an interest of mine uh, throughout life. Residency in LA, uh, any notable mentors along the way there? Well, I trained some with uh, Larry Dorr and Ed McPherson. They were mentors of mine, as wow. well as uh, Larry uh, Larry Menendez, who was an orthopedic oncologist in Los Angeles. Yeah. Uh, but the, the, the whole staff of USC at the time was great. We had great trauma faculty and Real, a lot of uh, mentors there. The doctor, I would say Dr. Menendez and Dr. McPherson really kind of led me into adult reconstruction and uh, uh, oncology as a primary interest. What inspired you to end up in Alabama? did residency at USC and then fellowship for two years in uh, orthopedic oncology, where I did a lot of adult reconstruction as well. And then uh, I got motivated to come out to uh, Alabama for the first time in my life and met uh, John Cuckler, who was the chairman of UA at UAB at the time. And he convinced me to uh, come down and give uh, Alabama a chance since they did not have an orthopedic oncologist and they needed also a joint surgeon. So I joined the faculty at uh, UAB in 2002, right out of fellowship. So I've had one job <laughs> since fellowship, and uh, this is all I know. So uh, sometimes it's good to do that, just to uh, kind of establish yourself in one spot. And also, um, you don't know any better. So 
this is my, where I've been. 19 years and 10,000 procedures later. Tell me about your practice these days. So the practice started um, as an orthopedic oncology practice, uh, mostly. And then uh, some infected joints were referred my way and other badness. And um, over time, the guys around me kind of retired or moved on somewhere else. And I became the joint surgeon here, as well as the orthopedic oncologist. So for a period of time, that's uh, that was just me here at UAB. And then we grew back again into a a bigger department where we started hiring an additional adult recon. Uh, however, around that time, I was also getting interested in implant design and uh, became more and more of a total joint surgeon. So as my practice grew, it really grew primarily in the joint arthroplasty area, not so much in the oncology, which stayed about sta- uh, pretty stable. So I had a couple partners over the years in oncology. One came and went, and now I have a, a new junior partner, Lisa Kafchinski, who trained up in the University of Toronto for her fellowship. And we were able to get her here doing a lot of uh, pediatric oncology with me and also um, soft tissue sarcomas. So she's been a tremendous help for me here at UAB. When I think of your practice, I think of that line, when life hands you lemons, make lemonade. That's uh that could be the story of my autobiography title. <laughs> I thought your practice practically is a lemonade stand. It really does feel like that. I have a surgeon that reached out to me the other day and, and wanted me to ask you, would you be open to the installation of a red phone in your office? Kind of a direct access hotline to make these referrals that much easier? Well, I think it's called texting. I do get, you know, I've trained over 100 residents in this area because we have six <laughs> residents a year and I've been here for 19 years. So texting referrals has been a big part of the practice. And uh, I have a great nurse who like is able to kind of screen them and manage them so we can get everybody in, kind of triage everyone, uh, especially infections and tumors in right away. I've got to ask you about the human element here. You just brought it up, the infection and the oncology aspect and, and so much of what you do. What's it like working daily with patients that are literally in crisis? Well, um, it's a process. So I know what the ultimate outcome can be. Uh, and it is a step-by-step process with them that I kind of take them through it and uh, provide hope for them, telling them that I do have experience with exactly what they have and that uh, it may not be solved in one surgery, but it may be a process. But at the end, I think they'll be a lot better. And I think that's something that I can project to them and give them hope and an idea of, of where we're going with this. And I think the confidence that you build and just being honest with people is uh you know, a tremendous asset. And um, having done this for 19 years, I do, I can vision uh, good results for a lot of the people who come through that don't have a lot of hope and uh, try to get them better as fast as I can. You made a huge splash on LinkedIn, sharing pictures of what you're dealing with week in and week out. And uh, I try to like everything you post because I do. What inspired you to bring your practice into this digital domain? Well, uh, it's kind of interesting. I just really just posted one interesting case that I wanted to get a little feedback from and just see who was out there on LinkedIn. I didn't really know that much about it. And then uh, as I started getting more responses and interest and encouragement to post more, I just continued to share my practice and the experience I had. And for the most part, I was trying to post patients who are, like you said, kind of in crisis and then show them in follow-up and uh, show that, you know, it may not be a great result immediately, but if you stay with some patients and continue to manage their problems, they can see a, a light at the end of the tunnel where they're they're going to live independently and, and be able to do all of, you know, many of the things they want to do. So it's a really a long-term goal for a lot of these patients. When I think about it, it's not a one, a lot of times a one-time treatment. Um, I see them frequently and uh, do get to know them 
for many years, just following them and seeing how they're doing. Let's talk about some of the things that you're seeing. I noticed one thing on your website that I had never heard about before, Von Willebrand's disease. It's a, a blood clotting disorder that uh, basically increases the risk of hemorrhage. It's a clotting uh, condition that is somewhat similar to uh, hemophilia in, in some ways and that it's deficient in the clotting factor. So we do manage patients like that here. Um, mostly it's a blood bank issue of just being able to provide them the factor they need, much like hemophilia. But uh, with adequate control of the clotting factors that they're, that they're deficient in, we're able to control bleeding and get them through a surgery safely. But uh, for the most part, I rely a lot on our hematology colleagues and our blood bank uh, experts in terms of uh, getting patients through those kinds of surgeries with blood clotting disorders. What's the most common thing that ends up on your surgery schedule? Oh, that's a tough one. I would say just uh, failure of you know implant surgery in general, uh, either short or long term. Uh, we see a lot of complications from joint replacement, hip and knee. Sometimes I do shoulders and elbows too. If there's a significant amount of bone loss. I'll, I'll do those kinds of reconstructions as well. More and more, I'm managing a lot of this with modular oncologic type of implants. So distal femur replacements and proximal femurs and things of that nature are often used now for revision surgery, which was not very common when I started. 20 years ago, we were basically, those were really considered oncology tumor prostheses, but now I think it's actually more commonly used for non-oncologic conditions. And many surgeons are able to do them now in the community. Uh, many of my residents can do distal femur replacements and proximal femur replacements. So so it's really become a more uh, mainstream procedure, which is really nice to see because I think a lot of patients were struggling for many years because uh, surgeons were a little hesitant to do those kinds of operations that were really going to be able to get them back on their feet right away. Let's start at the least amount of constraint and work our way up. Sure. Let's look at a CCK versus a hinge. What's your threshold for going hinge versus just a constrained surface? So a lot of it has to do on the flexion gap. So if I'm unable to maintain a flexion gap of that I'm satisfied with in terms of where the joint line is, what the patella tendon is doing and the tracking of the patella, then I'll go to a hinge if I can't sufficiently stabilize the joint inflection. So uh, for me, the CCK is less common than the hinge. Um, I'll go to that if it's a simple, maybe a poly exchange of a CCK where it's just clear wear, then I'll just exchange it if they were happy with it before. But for the most part, um, it's not uncommon for me to go from, uh, say, a constrained PS type to a hinge. The hinge itself has you know, getting better and better in terms of track record, better stability. Uh, patients are feeling more of a normal feeling knee in terms of uh, mobility and uh, the patellofemoral tracking continues to improve with more modern type of hinges. There's cones out there. Or there's uh, those that believe in the sleeve. Uh, where do you fall on that? I think uh, there are both options. I think it's helpful to be familiar with both situations. Um, obviously, the sleeve is primarily used for Depew. Uh, development also has the sleeves, which are certainly a good technology to be familiar with. And uh, I think for the pretty straightforward revisions, the sleeve can cover pretty much everything. Uh, there's some more complex revisions out there where I think the cones can be more helpful in terms of placing them in different locations. The sleeves are obviously locked to the implant. They're tapered, so um, you can't just place them in any cavitary defect. They have to be placed along the alignment of the implant. But this cone Cones can really be just placed anywhere you'd normally put bone graft. So the cone has a wider usage, but the sleeve is certainly easy to use and very reliable. Tell me a little bit about this cone that you've been calling attention to on some of your posts. So the flexible cones out there that Link has developed, mm -hmm. Link, as you may know, is from Germany, and they're, they've been around for 50 years, but primarily in Europe. 
and uh, they've been bringing more and more of their technology to the U.S. They have a, a cone that allows for some minimal collapse in terms of compression of the cone itself. So there's a thinner area of metal that allows the cone to absorb some of the stress that's impacted when you're uh, impacting the cone into the host bone. And that allows for, I think, a little bit improved fit, as well as a less of a risk of the bones essentially kind of cracking, which can sometimes happen with more rigid cones and sleeves. And uh, so I find them very useful. They're also universal, so you can use them with any implant system. You don't have to use Link to use their cone. Uh, the other implants uh, interchangeably use with uh, Link cones. Let's look at your DFRs for a second. How do you like to set your external rotation? So for the most part, um, I trial and look at the patellofemoral tracking and the joint line in terms of its relationship to the patella. Um, I look at the tension on the soft tissue, essentially, and if it's too much tension or the patella is maltracking, I will adjust the rotation. For some of it, it is uh, checking the linea aspera. If it's high enough, you, you can palpate it on the posterior cortex. Mm -hmm. uh, however, for the most part, I'm looking at patellofemoral tracking and joint line. You like to press fit or uh, cement stems in these cases? You know, I started for the first 10 years cementing everything, and I've gone more and more over time to press fitting as the technology's improved. I'm also sometimes using small cylindrical cones that assist with some of the fixation of, even at the uh, of the distal femoral st uh, stems. So I've gone more and more towards uh, press fitting unless it's a you know real elderly patient with osteoporotic bone, I'll still cement. Any pearls and pitfalls that you'd like to share for uh, community surgeons doing DFRs, uh, not nearly at the volume level that you're doing? Any tips that make it go great and any pitfalls uh, that you would say avoid that? I would say that uh, cementing is certainly easier than press fitting. So if it's not a procedure that's commonly done, I would certainly consider cementing the stem rather than press fitting because once you've started to press fit the stem, your rotation is basically established. You can't adjust it usually after that. Um, additionally, if you crack the femur as you're impacting a press fit implant, it can be more complicated to try to uh, fix those fractures. You do have to be somewhat concerned about fatty emboli, which can happen with cementing or cement uh, emboli which can occur. So it is a little bit of a risk in terms of that if you're going to cement. Um, so I would say that I would cement preferably. Um, I would also be comfortable with the technique. Obviously, like anything else, you don't want to do one if you haven't seen one. Be familiar with the tibia preparation as well. Uh, whether you have an implant in there, be prepared to deal with bone defects if the implant uh, causes increased bone loss. If there's no implant in there, be prepared to do a primary cut and know how much you want to cut. And uh, as far as sizing, it's not terribly critical. I usually try to downsize the components to get a good soft tissue envelope. And I also try to immobilize the patient in terms of flexion post-op for a couple of weeks to allow for the soft tissue healing and uh, some of the uh, ligaments or uh, tendons to start to at least heal a little bit before stressing them. So I'll immobilize in a knee immobilizer. Weight bearing is tolerated, but uh, I think that's been really helpful for the first two weeks to allow them to kind of have some rest. When you've got nothing but a thin shell of bone to work with on the patella, I know there's some revision patella, augmentable patella options out there. I was just wondering, are you happy leaving it as it is and just roll on, or uh, do you try to do something more? Yeah, I'll take it through a range of motion and see where the residual piece is tracking. If it's poorly tracking, I won't try to chase it and add additional patella to that. However, if it's tracking well, I would consider augmenting it with uh, either like a trabecular metal type of component that I can uh, perhaps either cement in or I can just, um, you can actually suture some of these 
trabecular metal patellas from Zimmerin and then cement the component to that. So if it's tracking, if it seems to be tracking well or it has reasonable soft tissue envelope around it, I'll try to resurface the patella at that point if it's just a shell. Jumping over to the hip for a second uh, at Akas, I saw a lot of flavors of 3D printed acetabular options uh, for some of these massive bone loss cases. I was wondering if you've dipped your toe into those waters yet. Uh, I do a lot of uh, triflange. I think that's kind of what you're referring to. Some of them yes, are 3D sir. printed, some of them are not. Uh, the more the smaller companies out there with 3D printers obviously are 3D printing them, and I think they're getting more and more experience with uh, developing implants with a variety of different materials that have potential ingrowth. Um, so, uh, yes, there are several in the in the U.S. now that are doing 3D printed custom triflanges, which I think are uh, very helpful in many patients. Um, I wouldn't suggest someone who doesn't do a lot of them to start now opening their OR to that type of surgery unless they want that. But there are certainly complications associated with uh, custom triflanges, which uh, you should be familiar with and prepared for to deal with down the road. You think they've pretty much uh, relegated bulk allographs? to uh, the historical section? Yes, I think the bulk allograph can be used. I know there are some surgeons still utilizing some of the bulk allographs. Um, it's a technique that uh, does take some time to learn and uh, certainly needs a uh, practice doing in terms of preparing the allograft and securing the allografts. Uh, I think that the 3D printed implants are have a lower learning curve in terms of uh, where to position them. It's a little easier. You generally have a good map to go by to position the implant. So I, I find the allograft is a okay technique, um, but you do have to be skilled in uh, doing those kinds of uh, allograft techniques and perhaps a fellowship. Where are you on the whole dual mobility scene and constrained liners uh, in your hip revisions? So I think of the dual mobility as more or less a large head. Um, I don't really feel like it's doing the same things a constrained liner is doing. The constrained liner essentially is replacing the abductors because there's no, essentially, a, the abductors are the del, kind of the deltoid of the hip. So they're keeping the hip in the socket, essentially, with mm -hmm. certain movements. And without that, you need constrainment. So the constrained liner becomes important when you don't have the abductors. As far as dual mobility, it's more of an uh, antiversion, retroversion of the cup implants situation where you want to have a larger arc of movement without instability. And I I do use them. I don't use them in smaller patients because the smaller cups obviously will have a smaller head and at some point it just becomes not that helpful. But in a larger patient uh, with uh, maybe a back fusion or um, limited range of motion of the hip that puts them at risk of dislocation, um, I certainly would consider uh, dual mobility. I've often wondered why they can't magnetically charge these things, right? Yeah, yeah I've thought about that as well. Maybe someday. Maybe someday. Infected joints, sir. I, I've had a talk with a surgeon out at AUKUS about this who had authored a paper about the single-stage exchange. Yep. And I was just curious where you were on that subject, hips and knees. Uh, are you more open to a single stage or are you still like the tried and true? It is uh, highly dependent on the patient and uh, how many surgeries they've had. Generally speaking, if it's a healthier patient that's had a short-term infection and hasn't had multiple treatments already in terms of courses of antibiotics and has some chance of a, a cure, I would, I would much prefer a one stage. Uh, there's a less a less of a morbidity stage. The patients can maintain work easier with a one-stage procedure and move on with their life quicker. Uh, certainly less cost related uh, to it as well in terms of hospitalization time. Uh, however, in, a, in an unhealthy patient that has draining sinus tracts and a poor soft tissue envelope, I think the risk, the, the risk is too high for persistent infection. And then uh, I've gone ahead and done some that are kind of like one and a half stages where I can 
kind of take the implant out if I want to, but I'm using pretty much real implants in a sense. So I can remove them easily if I have to, but also be able to let them weight bear on it and move around if they're doing well. So I kind of consider that a, it's kind of a one stage. However, sometimes patients uh, do have them removed and I don't press fit those implants. I'm essentially cementing and uh, using cement that I can remove. Any secret recipe for your lavage in these cases? Uh, I'm somewhat limited on what I can use in my practice in terms of what the hospital approves it. We have Irocept, which is a kind of a chlorhexidine saline solution that we use. Um, we also sometimes use betadine diluted and a Pulsivac. I can't say there's anything necessarily advantageous yet uh, in terms of those. There are some other interesting solutions that are coming out that I've heard of. Um, I haven't had a lot of experience with them. Uh, one of them is called Experience with an X. I'm right. interested to try. It's from Next Science. So I have not tried it yet, but I've heard uh, interesting things about it. And Back to Sure is something that is very expensive. So our hospital hasn't approved it, but I have heard some relatively good word about that in terms of uh, helping reduce the risk of infection. What's your opinion on these calcium sulfate beads impregnated with with antibiotics? So I'm a long-term user of Stimulin from Biocomposites. Um, I do use Vank and Tobra. Um, I use it regularly. That's something that I like to put in the canals of both hip and knee infections uh, instead of using kind of these uh, preformed or, or custom-formed rods that some people will put a cement rod in. I generally just put beads because they resorb. Um, right. I also will sometimes inject um, some Stimulin in the canal uh, with antibiotics in it and occasionally use it as a bone graft if I'm dealing with osteomyelitis and just putting uh, antibiotics in the bone graft substance. I also use a product with um, that's made of mag magnesium oxide, which you may have seen. I've placed a couple examples on LinkedIn. Um, yes. It's an interesting uh, material. It's actually was initially discovered with uh, use in pavements and streets and then later figured to process into a bone graft. It actually comes out as in a similar form as uh, calcium phosphate, also hardens, has a very high compression strength. So you can use them around, uh, I use them around augments, so I use them around cones, around uh, between the cone and the host bone if to fill voids. And I've had uh, so far a lot of good success with that. They also use it in subchondroplasties and vertebroplasties. So it's a very hard substance and uh, takes a while to resorb, about eight to 10 months. If my memory serves me correctly, I think I saw a post you did and you had coated a femoral stem with it. I have. When the canal is large and I know there's going to be voids, I sometimes will actually put it around implants. They've done studies in the humerus where they've uh, coated humeral uh, stems and have had increased ingrowth into the implant, longer longevity on humeral stems. So I'm doing the same in some patients. That's not that often done. I also put them on the backs of some of the acetabular components when there's a cavitary defects that I want to fill behind the um, acetabulum. And actually when it hardens, it's actually almost like a temporary cement. So it'll actually hold your cup and then you can place your screws right through it because you can drill through it without cracking it. Bone Solutions is the name of the company, and they're in Dallas. And um, the product I use is called Osteocrete, and um, I've been using it for about a year and a half. Direct anterior. Let's talk about primaries okay. for a second. You've taught this procedure nationally and internationally, and I'm sure in your revision practice, you have to be well-versed in every approach. Where are we on DA? Is it the state of the art right now? So direct anterior approaches are very helpful for the outpatient ambulatory surgery type of procedure. Um, it doesn't involve a lot of cutting of the muscle. And it, uh, nor does it have any specific post-op precautions in terms of range of motion for most of the patients. And um, I think that in the 
uh, surgeon who's very comfortable um, in doing quite a few surgeries, not someone who does them occasionally like one or two a month, but uh, regularly is doing the procedure. I think the, the comfort level can be achieved pretty quickly, especially if they attend a couple courses or visit a few surgeons. But uh, there are definitely tricks and pearls to facilitate the procedure and some patients perhaps to stay away from and do it uh, whatever their normal approach would be. I always want to call out companies that I feel pay attention to the design aesthetic. It's kind of a lost art in some instrument and implant design these days. I saw on your LinkedIn page the signature Spartan, which was just a beautiful stem. How did you connect with this company? So this company is very interested in the, what we mentioned earlier about 3D printing. They've uh, come up with some unique products, and this is just one of them that they decided to come up with a stem that had three different offsets. So it's got a low standard and high offset for those patients that we want to try to really key in on soft tissue balancing. Uh, the stem itself has, is collared. That theoretically could help the potential for rotational control when the collar is against the calcar as well as subsidence potentially. Um, the instrumentation is very simple, easy to use, and uh, good for uh, small and large patients. So I've been pretty happy with it thus far. I've been using it for about six months, and uh, so far I've been happy with the uh, outcomes. When you look back over your career thus far and, and all the cases, is there any case here and there that's just, if you're sitting around a campfire with a bunch of surgeons, uh, sharing stories. Is there any of them that jump out? Honestly, there are many, unfortunately. Some of them I kind of wish I would not remember, but uh, I would say, you know, as a tumor surgeon, there are some dramatic procedures we do. Uh, any kind of hemipelvectomy, pelvic surgery certainly has uh, dramatic times in the OR, some times where you're just almost cutting through soft tissue or around vessels that you can't really see, and you're mostly just trying to um, mobilize tissue the best you can. I've operated on some three, 400-pound patients that I've had to do internal hemipelvectomies on that have been extremely challenging. Um, so I think the large patients are, are very hard to do sometimes, especially for tumor. You don't really think about tumor patients being large, but they can be three, 400 pounds, and they need to have a malignant tumor taken out. Um, and those are real challenging patients where we've um, struggled with blood loss and uh, exposure and even assistance. Sometimes I'll work with just one resident on a large tumor case for four or five hours. And, uh, you know, it does take a while because of the lack of some of the assistance that you can get. But, um, yes, some of the cases can be um, intense in terms of bleeding. Uh, and in terms of just being able to get the exposure you want. One of the worst oncology cases I ever saw was a young man who came in for an ACL repair, and right where you put the guide pin in, there was an osteosarc there that was not picked up on imaging studies, and things went south pretty quick for this kid. Just a tragic story. I was just curious, how do you biopsy these and not end up doing the same thing? Just curious. Well, uh, theoretically, if you want to diagnose it as minimal as, as possible as terms of your approach, so ideally a needle biopsy is ideal because you're not really risking contamination. We basically consider, consider contamination anything that the tumor has a potential to touch. So if you open up, do an open biopsy, say, where you're making a surgical incision and then exposing the tumor to the surrounding soft tissues, any of those tissues where those tumor cells can, can basically adhere to, are all considered contaminated or potential areas of tumor growth. So we try to keep the tumor confined to the bone or at least to the soft tissue that's already been involved. We don't want to ex extend the involvement of the tumor. So ideally, a needle biopsy uh, through a 
through a muscle, one muscle is ideal. And then once we have the diagnosis, we like to treat the tumor uh, before removing it with chemotherapy. The goal of the chemo is really just to kill it. We want to kill over 95% of it. Uh, the more kill and good response we get from the chemo, the better the patient's survival is. And we know when we take the tumor out what the percentage of necrosis of the tumor, the death of the tumor is. So we like to know what if our chemotherapy has worked and also do we have all the tumor out and we like as much dead tumor as possible when it's removed. I remember reading a book on a long flight one time, Walking Taylor Home, about a father's journey with his kid that had osteosarcoma. Just an incredibly powerful book. And you know, it just brought up a question in my mind. Is an osteosarc patient-specific in terms of its clinical endpoint? Can it be benign in one patient and just be a disaster in another and then in between for other people as well? So it is somewhat patient-specific because we lump all, we tend to lump all the osteosarcomas as osteosarcoma, but on a molecular level, they are different. And we don't know exactly how different they may be from one to the other. So some respond to the chemotherapy that we generally will commonly use and others, we need to modify our chemotherapy so they can get a response. So uh, we like to catch it if possible, as early as possible, as, as early as we can diagnose it so we can go ahead and treat it before it spreads. Because the uh, osteosarcoma is most commonly in adolescents and young adults. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a cancer almost of children and, and, and adolescents. So, uh, many of them are still growing. So a lot of the surgeries must take into the account of the, uh, if we're preserving the limb that it's going to need to grow to match the other side, you know, amputations can sometimes are sometimes necessary. Um, the tumors themselves are bad. Um, uh, they're mo the most common malignant bone tumor in adolescents and children. Uh, second most common would be what's called Ewing sarcoma, which is also uh, treated with chemotherapy and surgery. Um, but the osteosarcoma is certainly a, a bad type of cancer. We don't have great chemotherapy for it. The chemo that we do have does have significant side effects in terms of patients lose their hair. They have multiple side effects in terms of uh, organ problems and cardiac issues can be potentially develop and infertility. So uh, many of the things we have to take precaution of before they start their chemotherapy. I asked a pediatric orthopedic oncologist this question years ago, you know, how do you do all this with children? And, and he just looked right at me and said, you know what, I'm here to fight for them. Mm -hmm. and, and I thought, what a great answer. Well, I will tell you that uh, the kids will are very resilient. And they say just, you know, just getting to know them and seeing the strength of kids and just being able to treat them and watching them overcome is uh, really rewarding. Um, there's nothing like seeing a lot of my patients growing up where I'm actually <laughs> Facebook friends with some of them from 15 years ago. So I'm still following and seeing what wow. they're like. It's just uh, really impressive to see them grow, have families, they bring their kids in. So it's really one of those careers where you kind of grow old with your patients, essentially. I see many of them, even though they probably don't even need to come back and see me, they'll still want to come back on a yearly basis. Uh, just to have me check an x-ray. So it is rewarding. It's also very sad when the patients don't do as well. And some of them do die and some of them need amputations. And, but on, on the other hand, we're, you know, we do the best we can with what we have. So it is a difficult career and it's not for everybody. I, I don't know if this is your wheelhouse or not, but when I was out at AUKUS, I heard about osteointegration yeah. for these amputations. And I was just wondering if you had any thought on that technology. Yeah, I think it's a, a great Great technology. I think it's going to really help a lot of patients with, that are amputees. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with it, it's essentially an intramedullary implant that goes into the bone and then exits the distal part of the extremity through the skin. So it's essentially forming a seal of skin 
around the implant as it goes out. And then the, the prosthesis is directly attached to the implant. So the patient actually has some proprioception. They feel essentially the weight of the ground of their leg against the ground through the bone. Uh, the prosthesis fits really well and they're able to balance even on sand and uh, unlevel ground. I've seen patients out gardening with their uh, above knee amputation. Um, it can also be done with below knee amputees and upper extremity amputations. So it's really a, a really incredible technology. It's been around for a while in Australia and Europe, but uh, it's kind of slowly coming to the United States through different uh, um, hospitals and academic centers. And we're going to have it here at UAB shortly. So we're real excited about that here uh, as far as using osteointegration. Very cool technology. Anything you're excited about in the device development world? Well, I hear through the grapevine that there are antimicrobial type of products coming out, whether they're going to be coatings or whether they're going to be just different types of metals that actually are resistant to uh, glycocalyx, which is formed from the bacteria. Uh, so I'm, I'm interested in that. I'm always you know, always wanting to see see and hear that there's going to be some progress in the area of, re of reducing our infections or at least uh, assisting with curing them without having to remove all the implants. So I'm excited about that technology. I think we're improving a lot of the things like hinges now. Um, I think we're finally accepting the fact that we can do a revision on a, with a hinge and it's not a failure of our own uh, tech technique. It's actually a good implant and many patients actually benefit significantly from the use of a hinge over a constrained poly that uh, they still struggle with in terms of pain along the collaterals. So I think we are accepting a lot more technology that uh, ortho ortho-oncology has used for years. I and mean, we have 15-year-olds with distal femur replacements that are now in their 30s and doing well with distal femur replacements and hinges. So uh, I've, I've had patients that have gone on to be like uh, college cheerleaders that we've done, you know, distal femurs on. So they're very active patients. Uh, many of you probably wouldn't even know if they had something done. Um, so we're, we're gaining a lot of um, acceptance for many of those kinds of products that I've been using for the past 19 years. And I, I think as an orthopedic oncologist, I know those products work, but it's taken a while for everybody to kind of accept that. I remember a trauma-trained surgeon telling me that uh, he heard at a meeting when you're opening up the cable tray, that's a sign of a surgeon in trouble. I love those super cables uh, on your x-rays. I think mm -hmm. those are really cool. Yep. I think there has been a perception over the years that a hinge is just that, that mm -hmm. you're in trouble. And right. like you said, that perception is changing. So I'm using more prophylactic cabling because of the synthetic cable. Um, I use them prior to impacting many of the press fit implants, such as cones and sleeves. Uh, and, and cones themselves have been a remarkable improvement over the years, even from the first cones that were released, which were pretty massive. We now have smaller cones that can be used on almost any revision. Um, and we have uh, augments around acetabular components now um, that are really helpful. In and as well, we have locking screws that can be placed in some of the uh, augments and cups that are really helpful bone graft void fillers now with like such as magnesium oxide and such. Um, we have a lot of other op options for stabilizing implants rather than just going ahead and, you know, putting an allograft in there. A lot of tools in the toolbox these days. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's been uh, really just a challenge to get to, to get to know where to use different things. We have a lot of choices now. Um, yeah. There is some cost related, obviously, to all this stuff. But I think in the long run, if we can keep the revisions of revisions down, you know, I think we'll we'll we'll, we'll all win, um, but we have to spend a little money to to get to that spot, unfortunately, and keep, <laughs> yes, uh, we do. keep the products and technology, you know, going and growing. Um, and as we get to use computers more, I think the data 
from all the computer information will uh, help us as well with some of the positioning of implants and and uh, some of the assistance with uh, placing distal femur replacements in terms of rotation and alignment. I think we can certainly use the help of computers for a lot of that down the road. Well, that's a great segue, Dr. Siegel. Uh, how are you incorporating technology? Well, um, I haven't incorporated a lot other than through the 3D printed uh, implants and some of the uh, 3D modeling that we do. Um, I use CT scans with 3D recon. So much of my pre-op planning involves um, the technology that I use right now from computers. We do not use any kind of robotics here yet. We are interested in thinking about where it's going to be used mostly in our practices here at UAB. Uh, so we haven't um, gone to that yet, but uh, certainly something that's on our radar. And uh, if one seems to kind of pull our attention a little bit more than others uh, at the moment, um, we're still kind of evaluating that. Well, you pulled my attention at ACA, sir. I, I saw you in a massage pod, and <laughs> I was right. just wondering, did yes. you make it out of there before the closing ceremony? <laughs> that's right. I uh, did make it out of there. I uh, do think it's important for wellness, so I, I, I have a very comfortable place to rest during the day through my cases. You know, as, as many of us know that do this kind of stuff, there is stress involved, and, and uh, I think it's important to take care of yourself and, and have some things a little kind of relaxed and, and places to go to just uh, you know, collect, collect your thoughts. Wellness uh, is a big part of uh, uh, doing all of the stuff we do. I thought it was an amazing meeting. Any takeaways? Anything uh, jump out at you as a notable quotable uh, yeah, in so Dallas? It's a, it's a big social event a lot of times, and it does feel like everybody's coming back together again after uh, COVID in a sense. And, sure. and um, it's great to see a lot of familiar faces. You know, you come to these meetings year after year. You just, it's almost like a little bit of a family there where you just seem to know the, the, you know, the surgeons, you know, the implant representatives and corporate people. And it's just um, fun to see what everybody's up to and hearing a lot of the stuff I learn actually is not on the podium. It's really just talking to other people and seeing what they're doing. So I would encourage uh, surgeons and everyone to just really get out there and find out what people are, are learning and, and uh, what they're doing in their own practices rather than always just the big study that was done, you know, of 150 patients. How about just, what have you done in the last 10 patients? So you'd see, you get to really get the, a lot of the good stuff um, off the podium. <laughs> so it's important also listen to the podium speakers and, and the bigger studies, but also what are really people doing out there and, and uh, what, what are the results like? Speaking of meetings, I didn't even know there was an arthroplasty disaster course. It's a biannual course that was sponsored by ImplantCast, and uh, it was done every other year in Miami. Uh, so many of us that do oncology and complex trauma stuff got together, and about 20 of us, and uh, there was an audience of about 50 other surgeons. And uh, we all talk about our just kind of our worst kind of case scenarios and different real comp complex cases um, that uh, many of us have to deal with. And, and you, it's nice to just go there and see that everybody's kind of having some similar issues. You know, you don't want to feel like you're the only one struggling with all this stuff. But there's there's some of us in every state and uh, it's, good to, it's good to get together to hear what other people are doing. What's next for Dr. Siegel? Uh, I'm staying here at UAB for a while and just doing uh, a lot of teaching. Um, continue to develop some of the implants. I, I love to communicate with the companies. I find it uh, very useful for me. Um, I learn a lot from them, talking to engineers from the different companies that I've worked with and uh, getting to know a lot of the surgeons that are also have a common interest in developing new things. And uh, I love just developing relationships with people and seeing the residents kind of develop on their own and 
we're going to have a fellowship program starting in August of next year. So that's exciting for us to start training a little bit more of the arthroplasty limb salvage type of uh, fellowship and uh, get some of those surgeons um, out there doing what I do. Well, I want to put you at the podium for a second, sir. Uh, you talked about industry. There's a lot of reps that listen to the show, and I was just curious if you had any advice for them as to how to better do their job in a way that makes everybody happy inside of your operating room. Well, I think that it's really important to learn from mistakes. So if something is going wrong, it's, a, it's the best opportunity you can have to learn something and to remember that mistake. Uh, or something you would improve on. I would think about the case after each time and figure out what you would do a little bit better because there's always something to improve and take notes on what the surgeon, uh, if, if you're working with a specific surgeon, what their likes and dislikes are and what seems to cause a problem or a holdup in the case and how you can improve it next time. So every time you have a success where the case ran smoothly, take a note of that as well. And uh, when you're out in the field, that's the best time to learn and just pay attention. Don't, uh, don't drift off. There's always something to learn in the room or from other people and make relationships. And uh, that's, I think that's the most helpful thing I can say is just uh, know the people in the OR, know the people that are around in, in your room that you're working in and uh, meet them and uh, develop relationships. Any uh, advice to the freshman class of surgeons coming out into today's environment on uh, just how to build a practice or just any advice that you would have for them? Uh, keep it about the patients. I would uh, trust, you know, trust in your skill and develop your skill for especially the first three years. I would uh, focus on the patient's care and uh, try to develop, again, some relationships within your hospital. Um, get, as they get to know you, get to know them, what works, what doesn't work, but really keep it about the patients and, the, and just the best care you can give them. And you'll always feel good about what you're doing. On a personal note, doctor, I got to ask you about this. I heard you're quite the travel buff. I do travel. Um, a lot of it is for implant uh, development <laughs> stuff, but uh, I also like to teach courses and it's always fun to like take a day or two and kind of see different areas. Um, travel to Europe uh, a couple times a year, at least, at least when there's no COVID and uh, enjoy that. But it's always fun to be able to meet up with people that are local to the area and, and uh, see different places. So, yeah, I've enjoyed uh, traveling and, and going to meetings and, and just uh, meeting a lot of new people. Any uh, place jump out at you is like your favorite place in the world to go to? Uh, you know, I love I really like Germany a lot. I've been there a few times now uh, with Ber at, uh, in Berlin. It's really a lot of fun. I've also been to Austria to Vienna. I've enjoyed that. So, yeah, I'm still just open to different places. Um, you know, I like to go to Tulum, Mexico as well. So there's not just uh, Europe, but there's other places and uh, to continue traveling. Um, thought about other trips down the road, but we'll see. But I uh, really enjoyed uh, meeting a lot of the European surgeons as well. They have a lot of different perspectives on things, different approaches, different uh, instruments that they they use. So uh, learning from different cultures is really helpful. The engineering ethos in Germany is just amazing, isn't it? They uh, have a, just a different approach to things. It's very uh, meticulous. Um, everything is a measure. It's very measured there. Um, uh, it's not as much into uh, uh, speed and efficiency. It's more just uh, accuracy and checking and checking and checking. So they have a lot of different theories and uh, excellent surgeons there. And um, But uh, different interests and um, just really interesting to learn from Asian surgeons and uh, even surgeons from like Russia and other places. It's just a different, different culture, 
different uh, hospital systems. It's just really interesting to learn about them. So for the listeners out there that want to connect with you, either to, to come out to UAB and watch you do a direct anterior or just connect with you on social media to see some of your posts, how do they best do that? Well, I'm on LinkedIn, as you said, uh, under Herrick Siegel. So pretty easy to find. Um, there, There's messaging that's associated with LinkedIn. It's probably the, probably the best way, at least initially. And then I can give you additional information through the LinkedIn site and uh, give you my contact information with my phone number and other things, email. But certainly uh, we are open to visitors um, and certainly can send some information about how to arrange for that. And uh, it's a great hospital here to for, for visitors. We have a lot of education and teaching here. So very open to that. Well, Dr. Siegel, a huge thank you for coming on Device Nation. There was a great proper from the 1500s. You can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. Well, judging by the x-rays, <laughs> thank uh, you. <laughs> we can put that old saw yeah. in the ash heap of history. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot for having me. I enjoyed it. Well, that was quite a buy one, get one today, wasn't it? A huge thank you to Will coming on the show to help us thrive and survive. And thanks to the surgeon he calls on, the estimable Dr. Herrick Siegel. A lot of inspiring words there to carry us forward into our week. Dr. Siegel just reinforces that notion we all need to grab onto in these inflation-ridden, trying times we find ourselves in. There is always hope, indeed, anything is possible. I need that as well. It's on the whiteboard in front of me as I speak. October 7th and the 8th. Mark your calendars. Save the date as we here at Device Nation are going to make the impossible possible. More on that soon. I am so excited. Thank you for being part of this amazing journey. You are truly the best of the best, and I look forward to being with you all next time.